Open your Bibles, please, to Genesis 1-1, Genesis 1-1, page 1. This morning, we're ready to move on to the second verse of the text, and it's only the third sermon in the series, so, you know, I've done the math, and we'll be done in 64 years. You know, so I hope you stick around for the whole series. The Bible is the only infallible rule for faith and for practice. Only this book can tell you without error what to to believe and how to live. And to that end, we must know this book well. So after a prayer, we are going to hear the word of God with some commentary. Spirit of God, you who hovered over the face of the deep at the very beginning, you who Breathe life into us initially. Breathe life into us again this morning through your word. Bless it for your purposes in our lives. Amen. The word of God, beginning in Genesis 1-1 with some commentary along the way. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This opening chapter of Genesis includes... A bunch of many, many, many thematic words, words that are important throughout the book of Genesis, throughout the entire Pentateuch, and frankly, throughout the entire scripture. But sometimes we miss those words. They can be hard for us to notice, and there's really two reasons for that. Uh, First of all, we're not listening in Hebrew. We're listening in English. And there's nothing wrong with English, but English is a bit more precise. Words in English tend to have narrower meanings. Not so much in Hebrew. In Hebrew, the words are much more ambiguous. Their meanings more broad. And so right here at the beginning, in verse 1, we have the word earth. But the Hebrew, when she was listening, when he was hearing this, didn't just hear earth. In the word eretz, he or she also heard land. Land, And they were headed to a land. They were encouraged to pursue the promised land. Land was their goal. And so right here, they hear Eretz. They hear the land. God has made the land to which we are headed. Verse 2. The earth was without form... And void. Ugh. We're headed to this land, but the land isn't suitable for habitation. The land is not ready, or at least it was not ready once upon a time. And yet we're going to see, as we read the continuance of this chapter, the unfolding story of God readying the land for human habitation, for his people. Verse 2, the word earth is not the only key word here, but those words uh, without form and void in the translation I read. In a literal translation, in a very wooden way, we might offer wasteland and empty. And in fact, the two major prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah, they use these same Hebrew words in that way. That it was a wasteland and empty. And again, we're not the original audience wandering through a wasteland. 
with no place to live, and so this doesn't resonate with us the way it would have with them. But they are being told that once upon a time, the land, Eretz, the place to which they're headed, it was also a wasteland like they find themselves in at this very moment. A wasteland and empty. And this is going to be the contrast against which God is going to work throughout the remainder of this chapter. God is going to work to take this wasteland and make it fruitful. And to take this emptiness and fill it. And what is God going to say to Adam? You now take over the working of the land and make it fruitful. And you reproduce in order to fill it. And what is God going to say to Noah when he gets out of the boat? And what is God saying to the people in the wilderness? You are living in a wasteland, but I am sending you to a land that I have prepared for you to be fruitful. A land flowing with milk and honey. You're going to go and you're going to empty it of all those sinners who reject me. And you're going to fill it with yourselves. People who know me and are mine. We have here a, a contrast. The earth was without form and void. It was a wasteland and empty. And that is an important contrast against the backdrop against which things are going to begin to unfold. So the earth was a wasteland and empty, and darkness was over the face of the deep. Oh, that we were saturated with ancient mythology. Okay, I don't really mean that. But in this moment, it would be helpful for the the darkness and the deep were both forces of chaos in ancient mythology. They were primordial uh, uh, forces working against God and against mankind. They were a threat to the existence of the gods themselves. And so we have here Moses queuing up the scary music. The undercurrent that leads to the goosebumps, but the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Whatever scariness was invoked by the darkness and the deep, God is over it. And for the fifth time, in just two verses, we have another Hebrew word that is ambiguous, richly, beautifully ambiguous. This word spirit, and there is nothing wrong with your translation, but translations in general have their limits. This word spirit is richer in Hebrew than it is in English. For the Hebrew word that underlies this can mean spirit, but it can also mean breath, and it can mean wind. And so here we have the spirit that could be a wind. It could be a wind over the waters. And what does that invoke? Well, that looks forward to God clearing the waters away for Noah. For a wind coming and saving Noah and his family. And if you're in the generation wandering in the wilderness and you hear about a wind over waters, what else does that invoke? Well, we were once trapped at the shore of the Red Sea. God sent a wind. 
or was it his spirit, to pile up the waters and open for us dry ground upon which to pass. This word is richly ambiguous. And of course, it's going to be a breath from God that is going to spark life in man. Is it the Spirit of God? Is it the breath of God? It is a richly ambiguous word. Uh, There is so much complexity and beauty to this word. So the Ruach of God, his spirit, his breath, a wind from him, was over the face of the waters, verse 3, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. Many have made much of the fact that we have light before we have luminaries. They have noted that it's not until day four that the sun and the moon are created to give light. But others have countered that argument by pointing out that in verse 1, the heavens were created. And if heavens don't involve heavenly bodies, then what are the heavens? But others have said to that, but you don't need heavenly bodies to give light. After all, in Revelation 21, there is no night, there is only light, but there's no sun. But others have responded even to that by, you know, the argument that, hey... The whole account assumes that the earth exists. Why wouldn't it also assume that the heavenly bodies now exist after verse 1? And so we have immediately a difficulty in interpretation and understanding. How are there lights when maybe the heavenly bodies that give the lights haven't yet been created? Or were they created in verse 1 when the heavens were created? But if so, then what is going on in day 4? we have a challenge of understanding before us. My point is a simple one. However, whatever view we hold of creation, the how and the when and the how long ago, we need to hold with some humility. Verse 4, And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening and there was morning the first day. God called the light day. I hope your version, like mine, capitalizes the word day. It is here a formal name. God has named the light. He named it day. Naming is associated with control and dominion. Even in pagan culture, the sun is worshipped as the... In every pagan culture, the sun is worshipped as the source of life-giving light. But in this account, God creates the light, perhaps even apart from any sun, and he exercises dominion over it. The light does not rule over life. The life has produced and has dominion over the light. And God named the darkness night. That which was throughout the ancient world perceived as one of the primordial forces of chaos working against the God's efforts is here simply subject to God's dominion. You know, we think of those people, oh, they were so superstitious, they were afraid of the night, they were afraid of darkness, they were afraid of these forces of chaos. 
But they were comforted, those at least listening to this in the wilderness, were comforted to learn that God was in control of those forces, having dominion over it. What is the darkness you fear? What is the thing that scares you? Do you realize that it is subject to the dominion of this same God? The one who called the darkness night, who named it and controlled it, is in control of whatever it is that scares you. Verse 6, and God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. Did you know that Orthodox Jews will not get married on a Monday, the second day? For you may not have noticed, but it is the only day not pronounced good. It's not that I think there's anything about it that's terribly bad. I think Moses just broke his literary pattern. It was all good, as we will find at the conclusion of everything. Verse 9, and God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth. There it is, Eretz the land, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. The days of creation are broken into two groups of three, two triads. In this, the first triad of days, the wasteland, which was the earth, is prepared for habitation. It's readied for occupation. It was a wasteland and empty, but after days one, two, and three, it is no longer a wasteland. The last day of each of these creative triads is set apart from the other days. Days three and six contain two pronouncements of creation rather than just one. So here is the second in verse 11. And God also said, or God said again, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind, on the earth, and it was so. Seed is yet another one of the key words introduced here in the first chapter that is going to be important throughout the rest of the book of Genesis. You will sometimes have a hard time following that thematic link, because you're not going to see the word seed very much after this. It's there. It's hidden behind the English word offspring. If you have a King James Version, they translate it as seed. Many of the modern English versions as offspring. But that's the same word that is introduced here. Verse 12. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the third day. The earth was a wasteland, and it was empty. These first three days, uh, concluded by this double creation, were notable for their preparatory actions. God took steps to prepare the wasteland to be fruitful. He brings light 
and darkness and separates them. Skies above, land beneath, seas in their places, vegetation upon the land. These three days have made the wasteland habitable. And now comes three days of filling them so the earth will no longer be empty. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. Now a rigidly literal, rigidly chronological reading becomes problematic. The day and night were already separated back in verse 4. If separated then, why are lights now needed to separate them? But if, for that reason, we abandon the idea of a chronological reading, then we have a problem because there's clearly chronology in Genesis 1. There was evening and there was morning, day one. Evening and morning, day two. Evening and morning, day three. There's clearly a chronology, and yet we have now in day four the account of something that we were told happened in day one. This is a challenge to understand. Continuing, and let them, the lights, be for, the, for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. This past Wednesday, we marked the beginning of fall. Why? Because on that day, the great light in the sky, the sun, shone on every place on earth for 12 hours. Every place on the earth got equal daylight and equal nighttime, equinox. Even here we are, thousands and thousands and thousands of years later, and we are still marking out the days and the seasons by the lights in the heavens. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. <clears throat> this is the fifth mention of separation in just four days of creation. And this may not mean very much to us, but we've got to remember the order in which these opening books of the Bible were written. Genesis was not written first. Exodus and Leviticus, and at least portions of Numbers, was written first. And so the people who heard Genesis the first time weren't, the, weren't hearing Genesis as the first thing they heard. You see, they were already familiar with the Levitical laws that said things like, don't pull your plow with two different types of beasts. They had already heard about how you should separate your crops into different fields. How you should not wear garments of mixed fabric. Most of all, of how you should separate yourselves from the world and be holy because I am holy. They were familiar with the idea of things being separated. And now Moses links for them and says, part of this goes all the way back to the beginning. And it does link for those hearers. The laws that they had been given were meant to remind them and to link them and to connect them to God's creative acts. Verse 20 
And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God named the darkness exercising dominion over it, over that primordial force threatening mankind. But here we see that he creates the sea creatures, the great sea creatures. This was another feared entity in ancient mythology. The ancients feared the great sea creatures, and they were always symbolic of threat, of destruction, of chaos. And Moses says, don't fear them. Your God made them. Your God created them. Fear him, not the things he created. And God blessed them, that's the creatures in the seas and the birds in the air, saying, be fruitful and multiply, fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. Blessing is another important theme that we must remember as we move forward. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. So the waters which were gathered and made usable on day two are now used. They are no longer empty after day five. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, kinds, livestock and creeping things, beasts on the earth according to their kinds, and it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. I would suggest to you that the word kind probably should be allowed a fairly broad interpretation. What do I mean by that? You should probably not envision that every possible feline was created here. Two cats were made, one male, one female. Out of those arose both Mufasa and Garfield. Like its counterpart, um, day three, day six is also set apart with two creative pronouncements. And God said, here's the second in verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. There's that blessing again. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Contrary to emptiness. And subdue it, contrary to wasteland. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. We'll come back and have much more to say on this next week. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. As many of you know, the chapters and verses of our Bibles were not inspired by the Holy Spirit. And in fact, they were not added till about 1,500 years after Jesus. And they are a wonderful, helpful tool, 
but they sometimes get it wrong, and I desperately wish chapter 2 did not start right here. For there is no question, but the next three verses are a continuation of the account of creation. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Imagine hearing that while you are wandering in the wilderness. What do you desire above everything else? Rest. Real rest. A chance to truly recline and relax. By the way, isn't that what most of us long for even now? Even in those times where we seek out rest and leisure, there's always that nagging thing undone. The project at work that isn't finished. The project around the house that has been unfinished for a year and a half. And it robs us of our rest. These people, like you and me, longed for rest. And in all this account of creation, they have seen how it points to their own situation and, they, and it concludes with rest. And it is a great hope that there is one day a rest to be had. You know, of all the texts in Scripture... There is none that I have feared preaching more than this one. It is the most dreaded portion of the Bible for me. I have tackled the bizarre text of bald-headed prophets calling down she-bears to maul teenage boys, and it didn't bother me as much as this one does. I have addressed the horrifying passages wherein God directs every man, woman, child, and beast in a village to be summarily executed. And it was not as challenging as this one. I've taught on the deeply disturbing and the theologically confounding, but this chapter, Genesis 1, is the most dreaded text for me. There is no chapter in all the Bible which causes me as much anxiety as this one does. And the reasons are many. One of them is this. It is absolutely foundational to everything else that follows. If I get this wrong, then we are on a trajectory that could lead to catastrophic results in our church. This matters. And it matters with a gravity and a weight few other texts carry. But there are some much more practical close-to-home reasons Many of you know, in addition to my theological training, I have an advanced degree in chemistry. I am co-author on several uh, scientific journal articles, peer-reviewed scientific journal articles. I am, by training, a scientist. And so I think people seem to assume that, oh, Scott, you've got it all figured out. You know how creation, evolution, all that debate, you, got, you know how it all is going to fit. You're going to set it clear in our minds. After this, there will be no longer any debate. If that were so, I'd have written a book. We could all go home. Greater minds than mine have tackled this and have not been able to resolve it. We must come to this 
with care and understanding of its difficulty. You know, some of you may be aware that uh, about 20-some years ago, our denomination, uh, we accepted a research, uh, 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 we, we, we commissioned a group of scholars and, 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 and pastors and teachers to, to prepare a report on the various views of Genesis 1, the various ways to interpret it. We accepted that report and we approved it as uh, uh, containing different views that were permissible in our denomination. That report reviewed four main views and then six lesser, more minor views, but it concluded, the courts of our church have concluded that all ten of those views were acceptable, might be regarded as belonging rightly to conservative, reformed theology. And so we have a recognition that even the best minds out there, the experts on this subject matter, they found at least ten different ways to look at this that were acceptable, were fitting as Presbyterians who held a high view of Scripture. Coming to an agreement on the interpretation of Genesis 1 is very difficult. You know, there's one interesting thing. All ten of those views, and I do hold to one of them, such as I hold to any of them, <laughs> one of those... None of those, I'm sorry, none of those takes an evolutionary view of creation. Our denomination has said that you cannot hold that mankind evolved from lesser organisms. You cannot hold that mankind came from ape-like hominids who themselves came from single-celled organisms. And at that point, we, 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 we wipe the sweat off our brow and we say, whew, good. Well, at least we're not evolutionists, those crazy liberals. But you know, even there we have a problem. Do you know the name J. Gresham Machen? John Machen was the founder of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, a denomination with which we are closely associated. He was the founder of Westminster Seminary up in Philadelphia, the source of many of our pastors. Machen lost his place at Princeton Theological Seminary because he stood for the inerrancy of Scripture and for its supreme authority over our lives. He was a staunch defender of biblical conservatism when European and German liberalism was washing over the shores of our nation. Machen was a theistic evolutionist. So was B.B. Warfield, another big name in the history of Presbyterian thought. Why do I share that? So that you'll be encouraged to be evolutionists? No, I don't. I think they're wrong. But I share that to say this. Our view, your view, my view of Genesis 1 is not the litmus test of godliness. I have no right to subject you to my understanding of this text. For to do so is to say that John Machen doesn't fit, doesn't belong, has no business being one of us. When in fact he did phenomenal things for the cause of Christ.
Genesis 1 was not given to us that we might bludgeon one another with it. Nor is it the ground on which I can ignore you. Oh, ignore her. She holds to the day-age theory. Come on. Oh, you don't have to listen to him. He believes in the gap theory. It's crazy. No. For what we find when we start to wrestle with Genesis 1 is that those of us who would be in agreement on most other things, who would call ourselves Presbyterians because we generally line up on all these other subjects, will begin to divide and differ on this subject. And men and women with whom I would differ on almost everything else, I line up with them on the interpretation of Genesis 1. So we cannot let it become a wedge of division, a source of endless debate. It is not here to set us uh, uh, at each other's throats and put us in places of judgment over one another. What? She's teaching a Sunday school class in our church? She believes the earth to be more than 10,000 years old. That's not why we have Genesis 1. So why do we? Why is it here? What do we do with it? I'm going to suggest at least four reasons, and we're going to hit them pretty quickly. One of its purposes is to connect your life to God's broader plans. To connect your life to God's broader plans. What did we read from the Westminster Catechism? That Creation is one of the ways that God carries out his eternal decrees. You have been created because you were in God's plan. Think about that for a moment. Not because mom and dad decided to have you. Or perhaps your older siblings tease you that mom and dad never planned to have you. You were the oops baby. Neither is true. You're here because God planned for you to be here. Creation is an act of God's eternal decrees, and his eternal decrees cannot be thwarted or upset or, or a, a, a runoff track. You are here by God's plan. And you say, Scott, that can't possibly be true. My life's a train wreck. Everything is going wrong. I'm so frustrated. I'm so miserable. Nothing is what I want it to be. Nothing is where I want it to be. Nothing is turning out the way I would like. But remember who received this the first time. They're wandering in a wilderness. They're in a desert. No home, no place to call their own. Out there because of their disobedience and their faithlessness. And to them comes the message of Genesis 1 that says God made you. I don't care what wilderness you are in in your life. Let Genesis 1 anchor you in God's eternal decrees. His divine plan. 
another reason that Genesis 1 has been given is that it provides comfort to us in the face of our fears. We've already touched on some of this. On the way that it talks about God's treatment of the scary things in the world, how God's Spirit hovered over the darkness and the deep, how God named the darkness and took dominion over it, how God is the creator of the sea monsters that threaten life. But more than that, to those wandering in the wilderness, it has said over and over and over and over and over again. Here in Genesis 1, God created the land to which you're headed. God has created seed, the idea of offspring. You are a people because of him. God instituted blessings upon the things he created. God gave to you dominion because he has dominion and the right to give it. And these things here, you're fearful, you're wandering in this wilderness, you're worried about the armies of the countries around you attacking you, you're worried about whether or not you'll be able to conquer the land when you get there. But all of this has been set in motion by the God who, who overrules all of it, who has dominion over all of it. God, the Genesis 1 account connects our lives to God's eternal decree, his creative plan. Genesis 1 also provides comfort in the face of our fears. And Genesis 1 reveals to us the true God. It is true that we don't know his name yet. He is still just called Elohim throughout this entire passage, generic God. And yet there is no question that part of the picture Moses is painting is this. Set aside every other contender for God. All of them are themselves created. This one is the creator. He's revealing to us God, capital G, the real thing. The psalmist said that we needed to see it. The Moses' sermon in the Deuteronomy in the Old Testament reading that we read talked about the importance of seeing it. We must recognize that God is God. That has some consequences. We will go into more detail of those in the weeks to come. But one of them, to be sure, is this. We are answerable to him. We are accountable to him. He made us. We are his. And any amount of rebellion on our part doesn't change that. Any amount of defiance on our part does not change that. There is nothing that a Ford F-150 pickup can do to cease being a Ford pickup. It is what it is by virtue of how it came to be. God is God, and we are his, and we are accountable to him. And that flows into the fourth reason we have Genesis 1. It glorifies God. 
Our Old Testament reading, our call to worship, they all pointed to this. The psalmists talk about it. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim his handiwork. Creation glorifies God. Out of nothingness he brought being. We talked about that last week. It glorifies God. And so we're back to the question of, okay, we've skirted all these different views of how we might think about how this goes together and how to interpret it, whether how literally we are, how figurative we get with it, how poetic we view it, how uh, narrative we view it. All of that, I've skirted all of that. And here's why. You see, many of us recognize in the atheistic evolutionary, uh, evolutionist in this world, we recognize in them how they fulfill our New Testament reading. How they sub, uh, suppress the truth of God in their wickedness. Having no desire to submit to God, having no willingness to obey Him, they suppress His creative uh, uh, ownership by denying that he created. Do we recognize that in ourselves? Do we stir up debates on these subjects to avoid that same reality? Our debates sound more biblical. We talk about God. We talk about Genesis 1 as though it's real. We're just debating on how to interpret and apply it. And there's nothing wrong with that discussion until it raises to a point where we become obsessed with it, where our righteousness is in it, where we are saying, I've got it right and you've got it wrong. I must be okay because I have this view of creation. And when our debates rise to that point, we are doing the same sinful thing. Suppressing the truth that we need to obey and submit to God. And sometimes that includes leaving the mysteries to Him. The secret things belong to our God. Be clear about the certainties he made us. He made all the things around us. He made them for us. Do not get distracted by the things you don't know, no matter how much you think you do. Glorify God. Recognize him as God. Take comfort in his control as God. In all of this, know that you were created by him, fitting into his eternal decree, having a purpose for which he made you. And let that be great comfort today, even as it pulls us back from the things we've been hiding behind. Lord, you are the one who's made us, and we are yours. We owe you everything. Give us the humility to admit that, the grace to accept it. And as you reveal more about it in the weeks to come, 
Let us rejoice in learning what you have for us, what you want of us. And let us look forward to you revealing through your word the plan for which you created us, the things for which you ordained us, the glories for which you have formed us. We long for this hope and look forward to these things, knowing that we can do so in Christ our Savior. Amen.